difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. And once again, we have a film spotting SVU and Dissolve veteran and screen crush writer and editor Matt Singer here with us, substituting in for absent friends Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Welcome to The Scorch, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me back, guys. Oh, wait, now I'm old me. Oh, now I'm young me. Which me am I? Oh, my God. Too many me's, and I can't tell which one is the one that we should be talking to. Are any of these yous smarter about film than any of the rest of them? Let's hope so. Otherwise, we are in for a long conversation. Well, we usually are. In our last episode, we looked back at Spike Jones Being John Malkovich, the surreal 1999 feature about love among famous actors and body thieves. It was also the first produced screenplay from Charlie Kaufman, at the time a TV writer. After Being John Malkovich became a modest hit, Kaufman went on to script the movie's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Adaptation. But then he branched out into directing his own work, with 2008's Schenectady, New York, 2015's Anomalisa, and now the new film I'm Thinking of Ending Things, starring Jesse Buckley as Lucia, a young painter who's contemplating breaking up with her solicitous boyfriend Jake, played by Jesse Plemons, even as she's headed out into deep farm country with him, in a snowstorm, to meet his gawky, awkward parents, played by David Thewlis and Tony Collette. Except, wait, is any of that plot description actually true? We're given several different names for Lucia and several different job descriptions. When she sits down to dinner with Jake's mom and dad, things keep changing. Her hair and clothes, subtle details like a bandage on Theulis's face, and eventually much larger things like Jake's parents' age and his relationship to them. There's a basement she's not allowed to enter. There's a dog that never stops shaking itself. And as she keeps pushing to leave the house, no one will acknowledge her. Everything keeps changing. What's going on? Kaufman is adapting a fairly celebrated novel by Ian Reid, and it's a book that plays into some of Kaufman's favorite preoccupations, surrealism, questions about identity and the self, desperately quiet men who largely live inside their own minds, and the breakdown of order. That may explain some of the film's more literary pretensions, like the scene where Lucia, or whatever we're going to call her, recites a lengthy poem by Ava H.D. and claims it as her own. But it doesn't fully explain the ending, as the world opens up into a literal dance number and stage song. For that, we're going to have to talk through the movie. It's possible to suss out what's going on in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, but it helps to know the book's plot, and it helps to look to that title for clues. Like so much of this movie, it's more than one thing at once. Here they come. Jeff has told us so much about you. He's told me so much about both of you, too. And you came anyway. <laughs> Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Ooh, physics. Really? <laughs> but there's just something profoundly wrong here. Are you okay? Yeah. I think you've ending I am so glad Jake has found someone. <laughs> Soon this will all be a distant memory. Who's this? It's me. No, it was me. I tell you, I would misplace my own head if it wasn't screwed onto my own head. I feel like I was seeing them as they were. Seeing them as they will be. Seeing them after they're gone. I'm thinking of ending. Can you stay here? 
Excuse me? You don't have to go. I don't have to go where? Forward. All right, guys. How did you take I'm thinking of ending things? Well, I think (laughs) I know for a fact that there's going to be a little bit of contrast on this podcast because I quite liked it. I don't know how Matt feels. I actually do know how Matt feels. You do know how I feel. Uh, But, you know, I liked it quite a bit. I've seen it probably like two and a half times now. Uh, What what prompted uh, the half a time? uh, Just trying to, I mean, trying to sort it out. It is, it is his least accessible film, I think, by a pretty significant margin. Which is really saying something. Which is saying something. It's connected in New York. Yeah, people talk about it. I think someone mentioned how it's like, what if the whole movie were like the last third of Synecdoche, <laughs> New York, which is true. And so, you know, you kind of have to adjust yourself to what it's doing. I mean, another comparison I heard made to it was like it's it's like an Alan Renee film. It's like a, you know, like a last year Marion Bad type of experience, which is also pretty true. It's just fascinating and compelling to me. And I felt like I wanted to kind of keep going back to figure it out and to, to kind of get into the mood of the thing, which is really what it's all about here, because this is so much about trying to find a way to express interior life in an exterior fashion, which is so much of what Kaufman does anyway, and very much what he does here. And I was grateful for, I mean, it's a, it's a more dour film than he's, that he tends to do even by his, standards but i also was grateful for little moments of humor and absurdity that he packed in there as well and surprise and transcendence so i just, i found it a very a rich text i mean a very very difficult film but a film that i uh found rewarding so matt scott says that you have to adapt yourself to this film do you want to adapt yourself to this film <laughs> when let's put it this way when he said he had seen it two and a half times already i started to sweat profusely just in the thought <laughs> of uh, subjecting myself to this movie which you know everything that scott says about it is true and the comparisons he makes are i think very uh, fair and apt and it's a very skillfully made movie and well put together and i was miserable watching a lot of it and uh the thought of uh, subjecting myself to it again is uh sends chills up and down my spine. I I think in the our first episode, someone used the phrase quarantainment. And uh, I don't know if I've seen a worse piece of quarantainment than this in terms of, the, not in terms of it being bad, but in terms of being ill-suited to my mood and what I want right now. And also the venue. I'm having a hard time sort of like breaking this movie apart from its Netflixiness and the fact that you know, if I had gotten to see this movie in a movie theater, I think there the odds are, are pretty good I would have, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I think I would have gotten more out of it. And I think I would have been happier wrestling with it. Seeing it at home, I just, I, I don't know, it was not uh, the best place for me to watch it. Feeling, uh, you know, like we, we talked in the previous episode about how claustrophobic movies that I like of Charlie Kaufman's can make me. And this one, when I'm already feeling kind of trapped and claustrophobic, um, it's almost overwhelming. And I'm not by nature a claustrophobic person. That's not really a fear that I generally experience, but I did (laughs) watching this movie. I don't know. I I envision, and this isn't necessarily a a criticism, I guess, but I just envision a lot of people turning this movie on on Netflix and after 15 minutes just being like, I am going to watch anything else. I'm going to do anything else with my time. 
And I kind of empathize with them because if this, if I wasn't doing this for my job and for this, and I might've turned it off too. Uh, and by the end of it, I, I feel like I, I got more out of it, but uh, I feel like a, a, calling it a difficult film is almost a, an, an understatement. It is just confounding and, and challenging and it just doesn't give a lot back. You have to really work for it. You have to adapt, I guess, as Scott said, you really, you have to really adapt for this movie. So I guess my question there would be, I mean, there is a literal claustrophobia to it in that a significant chunk of this movie takes place inside a small car in a snowstorm. And the character, the Lucia or Lucy or various other names character is literally trapped. She's not driving. She doesn't want to be going where she's going. She gets later in the film driven somewhere she doesn't want to go by someone who won't listen to her. So like all of that and the house stuff where she's ready to leave and she keeps saying, let's go, let's go. And no one will listen to her is very like literally narratively claustrophobic. I'm curious if you felt that same feeling of oppression and claustrophobia when the physical spaces open up, but you're still kind of dealing with the mental implications of being stuck inside a certain person's body and perspective. I mean, I don't think you really ever offered a whole lot of relief. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it is intense. I mean, it, 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 it's a wonderful, it's kind of a thing. I feel like with Netflix, there's almost these like levels in which they make these movies. I mean, because there's so much that they put on that service that's so kind of disposable and they all kind of look the same. But then there's just a craving on that the company's part to have auteurs on board. And, so, and the auteur's response is like, I am going to take that ball and I'm going to run with it and produce my most you know, impenetrable work yet. It's like, so in, in that sense, you know, Kaufman takes advantage and makes the kind of movie that maybe he could, couldn't have made anywhere else, which I, is re relieving. And it is, it is really resistant to home viewing in my, I think Matt is absolutely right about that. It is not sort of like I'm casually flipping around Netflix and I'm clicking on this thing and I'm actually going to pay attention for two hours in 10 minutes, every minute of which you feel quite intensely. But I think, again, if you make the adjustment to it, the atmosphere of it is so tactile and, and you, I mean, that claustrophobia is there and, you know, just the kind of snow globe. There's sort of this oppressive sort of snow globe that they're driving through is uh, really vivid. Uh, the house where she meets Jake's parents uh, and they're, and they're so strange and funny and tragic. I mean, all of those are so in the high school. I mean, there's really just four scenes. There's really four long stretches of the film. There's the driving there. There's the house there's driving away from the house and there's a high school and that's the movie. Um, but I, I think, I think those spaces are all rendered with tremendous patience, obviously, and, and, and require a lot of patience, but they're vivid. I think Tasha, we have not even heard your opinion about this. What do you think of it? Well, I'm not going to get to that just yet. Cause that question was intended for Matt. Okay. I want to hear Matt's answer to it since he's the one uh, <laughs> stuck within this movie and now stuck within this room with us asking questions. I mean, it's this is one of those interesting films, and it is an interesting film, even if I didn't really like it, where, you know, like I'm listening to Scott describe it, and it, everything he says is true, and you can see and feel the amount of care that's been put into this movie. And like, when I say I've felt claustrophobic, and I, you know, like, I understand why anyone would want to turn off the movie, at, especially at home. I mean, it's, it's almost like the movie is daring you to turn it off. It is pushing and prodding you all along where you are trapped in this car with these 
people who don't seem to like each other very much and making just the most kind of banal, rambling, strange conversations that take these bizarre detours. But again, like that is the conceit. That is the design. To me, I guess where I struggled was it was like, I don't mind a movie that's going to make me feel claustrophobic, that wants me to feel anxiety, that wants me to feel discomfort, to, to feel the isolation in these characters and their scenario. And I don't, I don't mind working for it or adapting or whatever we want to call it, but I, I guess I want something back. And I, I think that's maybe where the movie kind of fell short for me. It's like, I want to care about the characters and I really never did. And at a certain point, the character's you know, they are characters. They, like we've already said, they have all these different names. They mutate before our eyes. They get older and younger and they vanish and they reappear and they change forms. They, the further away it got from any sort of like indexical reality, any sort of thing that I could kind of cling to it, to me, it just became like kind of this exercise. And it was an exercise that I could sort of admire the craft of and appreciate what was going on. But at the end of it, I just didn't feel like I got much more out of it than that. And it was, and I kind of hate to harp on the Netflixiness of this thing too much, but you know, the other thing it kind of reminded me of, and in, in some ways was like the way people describe like Netflix TV shows where it's like, well, if you sit through the first six and a half hours, <laughs> right around the midpoint of episode seven, it gets really good. And that's, you know, that was almost how I would, I could imagine someone describing this movie where it's like, well, the first part is really long and not much happens, but then they get to the house and that part is really long and not a whole lot happens there. But then when they get back in the car and, and you really begin to see the whole arc of this thing, well, that part is really slow too. But then at the end in the, in the high school, you'll really begin to understand how it all fits together. And you do. And there are some kind of lovely little notes at the end, but it did feel like an awful lot of of a journey to a discovery that I didn't feel entirely worth it to me. See, I think I think you would have been I think the journey for you, I would have thought, was to get to that forget Paris joke. I thought that was like that's <laughs> that's the payoff, that drop in that setting. I absolutely like burst out laughing. When I got to that part of the movie, because it had been so dry and absurdist before, and then suddenly Forget Paris comes off up, and David Thewlis calls Billy Crystal a Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, this is absolutely brilliant. Tasha, are you ready to tell us what you thought of this film? I mean, I think ultimately, if, if it's a flat scale, I'm probably somewhere between the two of you. Ultimately, my feeling was... I thought it was a visually beautiful movie. I was engaged with the conversations, even as I wasn't terribly engaged with the characters. I mean, I think Matt is absolutely right in saying that they're functions rather than characters. You know, their interactions past a certain point are representative of ideas, but not really representative of people anymore. And that's in keeping with Kaufman's questions about identity and his interest in the life of the mind and his big symbolism and his like meta story design. But on some level, you know, Ebert said that movies are machines for generating empathy. And this is expressly a movie for generating no empathy. It's expressly a movie for expressing a complicated and fairly abstract idea. And while I like complicated and abstract ideas, they don't feel emotionally satisfying. They don't feel emotionally gripping. So that last act at the school 
where everything breaks down into an extended Oklahoma homage with the fantasy ballet uh, expressing characters like inner longing and desire. And it's snowing inside the high school. And then eventually it gives way to a literal performance of a song from Oklahoma. I thought all of that was beautifully shot, but just not very engaging on an actual character level. At that point, we've kind of abandoned the physical or emotional existence of the character that the movie spent the most time working on and establishing. The tension that we've set up is she's in a place, she's in a relationship she doesn't think she wants to be in. She doesn't see a future for it, but she's putting herself through all of these things for it. And then the movie just sort of lets that go. There's a huge interesting irony, I think, in the idea that the story is, as I understand it, and particularly from reading descriptions of the book, like, we can talk about this is a huge spoiler, I guess. But the fundamental action of the film is that she doesn't exist. Jake doesn't exist. They're all their characters, their imaginary characters in the mind of this aged and very lonely janitor who is dying and experiences this sort of like psychotic breakdown uh, in a way before he dies. And the idea of these characters not being characters means they're not people. And at that point, it becomes hard to relate to them. And one wonders why we've spent so much time with them. I had a little bit of the same problem with Anomalisa in that you spend so much time on the specific humanity of these characters, but they're really just kind of representative of an idea. And in the end, the movie does come back to Lisa, but before that, it kind of abandons both of their humanity and you're left in this symbolic space that just isn't really about people anymore. But I almost I feel like the performances give you that, though, especially Jesse Buckley. It's interesting that she is a composite of so many different things and everything that she is is borrowed from other you know she has a poem that's not hers and paintings that aren't hers and you know she's quoting at length from a pauline kale review of a woman under the influence that's not hers and so yeah and so the character is not real or is this composite of other things and yet jesse buckley the actress is so powerful in the role she's the one who kind of takes the reins here and kind of grounds the movie in some recognizable emotion i mean i I don't know it sort of plays with those ideas of artifice and construction and then realness there i mean there's some real emotion in this movie there is real emotion but ultimately it's the real emotion of a character that you barely get to know and i think there's something very clever and very smart and very ambitious in building this story Basically, you never get to know the janitor, but you know him through the figments in his mind. You know, you know that he's insecure because Jake is perpetually trying to impress the Lucia character. He's perpetually trying to offer her things and comfort her. And like, even in his own fantasy of himself, even in his own fantasy relationship, even with this woman that he's invented, that he keeps kind of losing the details on or changing the details on, he still can't quite imagine a woman that's attracted to what he has to offer, that's attracted to to his intellect that's attracted to his obsessions. I think there's a realism to that that's tremendously sad. And I think it's very interesting to kind of puzzle through the pieces of the movie to see what we can assemble about the real character in the story from all of these like artificial things. But at the same time, I like a puzzle can only get me so far in art and in emotion. And I'm seeing a lot of the same, a lot of people saying the same things about Tenet right now. It's like if a movie is 
exciting and ambitious and visually engaging, but you don't care about the characters at all, or you can't engage with the characters because they don't fundamentally matter. If the entirety of the focus of the movie is on, can you piece these pieces together? Can you read the filmmaker's mind? Is it a satisfying experience? And in this case, I enjoyed the experience of it. I can't see myself returning to this movie. I can't see myself volunteering to watch it again the way I would watch being John Malkovich or Eternal Sunshine or uh, Schenectady, New York. Yeah, see, I guess that's the difference. I've seen it two and a half times, <laughs> and uh, and it's just because it's just it, 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 because it's a puzzle. I I do feel compelled to try to figure out, and it is a well realized world that i don't mind spending time in is as oppressive and difficult as it can be you know i like being in the car with those two those two crazy kids talking about cassavetes and uh you know in poetry see i didn't see it as a puzzle i guess you could tease out a solution and i think tasha had some interesting things to say about that in terms of like piecing together the person who's theoretically imagining all of these things is, I guess, the sort of the solution or the answer that you could be finding here. But when I was watching it, it felt to me more like someone had given me a piece of furniture to assemble from Ikea without giving me the instructions. And I was sitting there going, oh, this is a lovely part, but I don't see how it fits to this piece over here. And I don't know how I'm going to connect it to this one over here. And even while I was admiring the craftsmanship and the pieces, I wasn't really seeing how they fit together. And I was more than anything, I was just kind of frustrated that I was the one <laughs> having to put it all. <laughs> I was having to do so much work. And uh, yeah. I guess I don't, I'm not saying that I need a movie with an instruction manual necessarily, but I think Tasha and I are actually closer on the movie than maybe I, maybe I'm sounding too negative, but like a lot of, I'm finding myself agreeing with a lot of what she was saying right down to the fact that you know, even as you were saying, Scott, like the the Jesse Buckley performance here is is lovely at times and very true. It's like following her in the beginning of this movie, and then by the end of the movie, the quote unquote revelations or the moments of insight or whatever they might be in that high school. You know that her character is the one that kind of is the one that seems to most kind of vanish, and it's like if we have mm-hmm. invested anything in her. You know, she's barely on screen. She's sitting in the audience as Jesse Plemons is performing his big number on the stage. And, you know, it's like if she is giving the most interesting performance, it's the one that's the least involved in that ending in some ways. And so to me, that was another kind of frustration or disappointment. And so, yeah, again, would I see myself getting more out of it if I went back and watched it again and wasn't so focused on the mystery or the plot or trying to understand what was happening? Um, Probably I would, but do I find myself wanting to go back and experience it? Not especially, no. So here's the thing. As I was watching the sequences in the house, I kept coming back to David Lynch's eraser head. The whole Mm. interaction with the parents and the way everything keeps shifting, the dreamlike logic of it all just reminded me a lot of kind of the nightmare visions of David Lynch. And those just really oppressive stories that he tells where nothing seems fixed in place and everything does seem like a dream. But as the film went on, particularly at the high school, I started to think about Darren Aronofsky's mother. Mm -hmm. And that movie was so polarizing. And I feel like this movie lives in the exact same place where Mm -hmm. you can be impressed with the performances. (laughs) You can be impressed with the, the puzzle aspect of it all. You can be impressed with teasing out the meaning 
But ultimately, because there is no center, there is no kind of fixed point in space for the characters, you have to not be there for the characters in the story. You have to be there for the larger puzzle. And I think some people are going to be and some people aren't, just as they were with Mother. I mean, it's a clear F cinema score. Yes, which is that's, that's another thing was. that the lack of a theatrical release has It is not us. a uh, particularly lovable film, and a film that a lot of people are going to latch on to that aren't really self-selected Charlie Kaufman enjoyers. But, you know, good. <laughs> you know, sometimes movies are made for those, made for uh, different types of people. But I, I do like the David Lynch comparison. I mean, I think, and I think there's a kind of this Americana aspect to it, too, that was also... That's always something that Lynch is attracted to, that some of that the iconography of being on a farm and with all of that entails is something that we might see in a Lynch, Lynch movie, too. Mother was definitely on my mind watching it, too. The, the sort yeah, of the, divisiveness, the, pol- the trapped in this farmhouse with these eccentric people, you can't leave. I think the reason that I enjoyed Mother a little bit more than this movie is just because, I don't know, that movie got so wild and frenetic and crazed. And it was at least kind of, if people don't change the channel or turn off their Netflix watching it at home, it's the kind of movie that could easily lull you to sleep with those long car rides through the snow. It's dark. I I could see, you know, this is the movie that, you know, I could imagine loved ones of mine. I'm saying this is, you know, with a lot of love and respect in my heart. Like, this is a movie that would put them to sleep. You know, parents I know and relatives of mine, they would just say, oh, yeah, we can watch that. And then you'd look over like 40 minutes in and they would just be like, <laughs> doing the doing the dipping, you know, yeah. for sure. Like, no, for sure. It just, it you know, even the moments of quote unquote excitement, uh, you know, you don't really get that cathartic kind of those eruptions that are at least in mother so that even if it is kind of all one giant puzzle or allegory there, or the characters aren't quite real or fully realized or dimensional, there's at least some, you know, some oomph there that this movie is all kind of, it's not an oomph. There's, it's more like a, eh. <laughs> it needed a sad person in the landscape though. It just said, <laughs> <laughs> I, that whole exchange again. I, I, I mean, you know, he can still write that kind of thing, and just it's just so funny of just inco- people not comprehending, uh, you know, anything other than you know art that's like a photograph. Um, but here, you're kind of blowing my mind a little bit, Scott, because. I didn't necessarily see that as a mission statement for this movie, but that is exactly what Matt and I are complaining right. about here yeah. is the, the last act of the movie takes the sad person out of the landscape and replaces them with a sort of vague image of a sad person that you don't know. Or like, we are the sad person, which is sort of what she says, where we are the sad person looking at the landscape, perhaps. One of the things I thought as I was watching this movie is uh, just, I don't know what's important here, probably because it's Kaufman, everything is important, but I feel like you could go through it and pick out a dozen seemingly random lines from a lot of these conversations and take them away as a big thesis statement. I get the feeling that this is one of these fractal films where everything has significance and particularly everything has significance in terms of the kind of the unseen character, the janitor character, the character who's experiencing all of this. I feel like every moment that we have with the parents probably represents something that happened to him with his parents as they aged, you know, as he was interacting with them, like from youth to eventually their death, because he's an older man, and they're almost certainly gone. I feel like all of it is probably significant. But is there satisfaction ultimately in 
picking out the significance of such like opaque images, I think it just really comes down to your personal mood, your personal tastes, and uh, like how you interact with cinema. Yeah, I I agree though. I do have this thought, much like you know, if you're going to compare him to somebody like you know Alan Renee, that what's this going to look like in ten years or twenty years, or in the scope of Kaufman's career, and it's going to be one of those texts. I think that come back to you because it is so full of moving parts and maybe those parts look like uh, discombobulated pieces of Ikea furniture, but I can see this is like a movie that launched, you know, a thousand you know, doctoral papers or something. It just has that feeling of a, of a rich text that we're going to be unpacking for quite some time. At least I feel compelled to do that. It felt, it, it felt to me like just a very, large itch that needed to be scratched which is why i watched it more than once for this podcast because it was like wow i just this is something else and i'm not i don't know what it is <laughs> so i need to watch it again and sometimes you have that feeling like i don't know what this is i don't want anything to do with it which is another response but um that's where i stand so what you're saying scott is it's not bad once you stop feeling sorry for yourself because you're just a pig or even worse a pig infested with maggots <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh God, I forget the animated stuff. That is. see, there's all kinds of stuff in that movie. There's, a, there's an animated maggot-infested pig. How can you not love it? And like everything else in the movie, it's deeply, deeply thematic. There's a lot to talk about left in this movie, but I think it's all going to be a little more interesting, kind of bringing it into focus with being John Malkovich, uh, because these movies have so much in common while seemingly having so little in common. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between being John Malkovich and I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Supposedly fun things you'll never do again. Yes. Have you, have you read that? Read what? It's a book of essays by David Foster Wallace. No, I have not. It's a, bu- uh, a book of essays? Uh, no, I haven't read it. We should find some place to dump these. They're going to melt. Get the cup holders all sticky. Mm. Okay. Mm. He's got this essay in it about television. <clears throat> Pretty people tend to appeal. Pretty people tend to be more pleasing to look at than non-pretty people. But when we're talking about television, the combination of sheer audience size and quiet psychic intercourse between images and oglers starts a cycle that both enhances pretty images appeal and erodes us viewers on a sense of security in the face of gazes. That's from the essay. It's, it's interesting. He killed himself. Yeah, yeah, I think I knew that. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So <laughs> here's the here's the thing, guys. Recently, Charlie Kaufman came out with his first novel. 700 pages, ant kind, uh, a handful of people reviewed it. And I got an early copy and I was very excited to dive into it because I thought, you know, here we get to see what Charlie Kaufman does when he is not in any way constrained by production budget or values, where to put the camera. Like, what is he going to do with this infinite tapestry that he has? And for the hundred pages that I read before I put it down, 
basically what he did was wallow in the depressive mind of a delusional, racist, sexist, obnoxious, solipsistic asshole who just goes on and on and on about how basically the world hasn't kowtowed to him enough. The world hasn't deferred to him enough. He's not loved in the exact and generous way that he wants to be by the world. And yet with like every single page, he proves that he's entirely unlovable. And for the first time ever, I started seeing this as the Kaufman theme, the Kaufman character. I started seeing how all of his works are kind of defined by this look at the sad, delusional man who thinks he's the most important thing in the world, can't escape his own head. In the case of I'm thinking of ending things, that feels very literal. I mean, we are literally stuck in the perspective of uh, like this old, sad, dying man who's <laughs> trying to put together a fantasy life for himself to sustain himself. I can't even hold that together. In being John Malkovich, we're, we're wrapped entirely around the, the needs and the drives of Craig, who is in a marriage that he's bringing nothing to. He's in a relationship with a bunch of pets that he doesn't care about. He meets a coworker and immediately decides he has to have her and he has nothing to offer her. You know, he's the equivalent of, of Scott Pilgrim. When we recorded that commentary track, we're gonna, we're hopefully gonna get edited and released soon. We talked about the fact that he has nothing to offer Ramona Flowers except a, a stale joke about the origins of Pac-Man. And it's, it feels like the same sort of thing here. Like he has nothing to offer her until he finds the magic portal. So what is it with uh, Charlie Kaufman and like sad delusional men who want everybody to bend to their whims? I mean, these are personal films. <laughs> I mean, not to slight Charlie Kaufman, but I mean, I think he has a personality these are the types of characters that he, he puts forward, these relentlessly self-deprecating portraits of potentially who, who he thinks he is. Maybe his worst image of himself is what ends up on the screen. and It gets deconstructed in, in the harshest possible light. I mean, that that's kind of where these films get their, their darkness. It's where these films get their absurdity and their humor to kind of go to the, the far ends of depression and, and, and narcissism and, and pretension and all of these other elements of what we've come to, to know is the Charlie Kaufman character. I mean, it's hard not to read an autobiographical element into it when the prime example of it is a character whose name is Charlie Kaufman in the movie adaptation. Like, all the things you're describing uh, are present in that character, and that character is uh, Charlie Kaufman. Now, it's not strictly accurate in the sense that he has a twin and all of these things, but it's uh, difficult to not read him or at least his fears and neuroses about himself into these men uh, when you see something like that. So, yeah, I mean, again, I don't know whether it is this is who he is or if it is this is who he fears he is. And there's an awful lot of general anxiety and fears and neuroses in all of his movies that are not just limited to that, that I think perhaps, you know, if we're being more generous to Charlie Kaufman, and I do think he's an incredible writer, incredibly smart and funny person. So I don't want to be like, oh, he's just a, you know, he's just this terrible schlub who's managed to make these movies. Like you could charitably or more generously call it, you know, soul bearing about his fears of how he is or who he seems to be or how he presents himself more than it is his true nature or, or how other people see him. Uh, one thing that I really latched onto with both of these movies and with Kaufman in general is 
his interest in interiority in the life of the mind and how the films are a way of giving very clever expression to the abstractions of of that interiority you know it's all in the conceits i mean his films are so have these huge hooks to them uh being john malkovich certainly does of this portal inside john malkovich's head i mean you can't get it's like weirdo hollywood in the, in the sense like his movies have these unbelievably big hooks not this new one <laughs> I'm thinking of anything which really doesn't have that much of a hook. But the reason why is like he's able to use these ideas to, you know, get into almost like the into metaphysics in a way. I mean, just to, to kind of just take the things that he's thinking about and finding expression in those things through plots where everything's external. And I mean, I, I'm thinking of any things is a little different than being John Malkovich and more like Synecdoche, New York, and that you do feel like you're almost going deeper and deeper inside the head of these characters, particularly Jesse Buckley's character. You already start at such an intimate place. You already start with her narrating and telling you how she feels and about how thoughts, what, what's the line about thoughts, about how thoughts, uh, nobody can fake a thought or something like that. Um, um, that she says at the beginning. I mean, I, I just, you know, you, you feel this like immersed inside this person and inside these characters. And uh, that's extremely important to Charlie Kaufman's work. It's critical um, that he find some cinematic way to express interiority, which is usually the job of a novel. It's not usually something that films do well, but Charlie Kaufman has kind of cracked that code. Whether you think he cracks it in the new one is another question because it's an adaptation of a book that he didn't write, but it's something that he is constantly doing in his movies. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, I mean, the the, the fundamental setup of Anomalisa is basically seeing the world from inside the viewpoint of a pretty banal man who just doesn't see the humanity in other people. Everybody looks and sounds alike to him as far as he's concerned. And Eternal Sunshine is about literally traveling inside somebody's head and seeing his panic as he starts to lose things from inside his head as he tries to hang on to what's important there. So, mm-hmm. like, looking at that, it, particularly with these two films, I think it's really interesting that the first several times people travel into Malkovich's head, he is not doing anything that would be interesting to anybody. You know, he's eating toast. He's putting water in his coffee cup before he leaves. He's polishing down his own eyebrows. He's taking a shower. He's going through a catalog. Like, all of these things that are incredibly mundane and are so exciting to everybody who's getting to experience them because they're a, a different point of view, because they're somebody else's body, somebody else's world, somebody else's life. And I think that that's, in just in a really subtle way, a really smart and telling observation uh, that kind of gives the film... I mean, it would be so easy for that movie to be about people falling into Malkovich's head while he's banging gorgeous starlets, while he's uh, meeting the paparazzi, while he's hanging out with extremely famous people, while he's on stage in the middle of uh, getting a huge standing ovation. Like, all of these things that stars get to do, and we're not seeing any of those things through his eyes, through other people's perspective. It's all just about how even the most mundane thing becomes exciting if you get to get out of yourself for a change. I I think that that's really neat. And then in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where similarly we're spending so much time theoretically like in this man's head, 
and we're experiencing all of his anxieties. Like instead of experiencing his, his mundane day to day, we're experiencing his disillusion and the slow disintegration of his mind. And it becomes so much more interesting than you can imagine, like the day to day of being a janitor being. It's funny to hear, like when you hear descriptions of these two movies that are so different in so many ways that there are a lot of these interesting kind of echoes of one another. I mean, just even the the very idea when we boil down, I'm thinking of ending things at the end, we, when we see that essentially all of these characters are not who they appear to be, that is kind of a connection to being John Malkovich, where we have people who I look like John Malkovich, but I'm actually John Cusack inside the body of John Malkovich. And that's very much present in this movie in that all of these characters ultimately, and I'm, I'm thinking of any things, ultimately appear to be, you know, either fragments of this janitor's personality or fantasies of this janitor or mouthpieces of points of view of this janitor. And so that's an interesting, another interesting thing that they have connecting them. Yeah, when I wonder if Kaufman just spends a lot of time worrying about getting outside his own head because his characters so often are either trapped in heads, which literally happens at the end of uh, being John Malkovich, or are escaping into other heads or are being liberated from other heads through often through artistic expression as much as anything else. Well, and think about it this way. One thing I think about it too, I assume that all writers feel this way, I certainly do, is that you get tired of your own voice in a way and you want to transcend it in some way. It's like, I really wish I could write like this person does. <laughs> or Matt I could, and I are both or, like or, nodding. were ferociously nodding. Yeah, <laughs> nodding along. Yeah, or, or I, yeah, or I want to see the world like that person does. Like that, that insight. God, I wish I had that insight. Right. And that's part of the appeal of movies in general is getting to see the world from the perspective of other characters. I mean, that's one of the key charms of going to the movies is to see the world through the eyes of another character. It's He just has made that aspect that's kind of buried subtext or that's kind of intrinsic in all movies. He has kind of made that his kind of one of his main focal points, one of his main pieces of text. Uh, he makes it literal. I mean, sometimes very literal in the case of some of these movies we're describing where it becomes very much the you know, the hook of the movie, you know, it certainly isn't being John Malkovich. See the world through the eyes of another person. Well, and it plays into another kind of idea or connection I think we should get into, which is identity and identity shifts, identity theft, as you have here. It's like that is kind of getting outside of yourself when you're able to slip like that from one personality to another. We see Lottie making the transformation she makes. We see Craig becoming the type of artist that he wants to become, that's liberating in those movies. And I'm thinking of ending things. It's not fantasy necessarily. It's much more, you know, someone who's a, a fragment of made up things in a lot of ways in the case of Jesse Buckley's character in the sense that, you know, the, the poetry that she's presenting is not her own and the art that she's presenting is not her own and the film criticism she's presenting is not her own. But it's still nonetheless kind of exciting to have that possibility of being able to be in another form to take on aspects of personalities that are not your own to be able to transcend the body and all the other stuff i think that there's a yearning almost at the center of kaufman's work that kind of comes out in some of these films that i connect to very much the desire for kind of freedom and liberation that you're describing that comes with switching to another perspective and going into someone else's head to me that's like directly 
connected to the overwhelming claustrophobia of everything else in his movies, like that we were talking about on the last episode in The Seventh and a Half Floor. And it, something we didn't mention, I don't think, and I'm thinking of anything, is the whole movie is window box. It's four by three. Every mm. single shot in this movie feels more claustrophobic than it theoretically could if he had shot it widescreen in some way. And so mm. you already, like, even in the moments where they're not confined to that house or that car, the frame never gets very wide and the characters are almost always shown in close up. So they're, they just seem confined by the frame of the movie itself. And so I think these two things, the kind of that liberation side and that claustrophobia side, they go hand in hand and they're very present in both movies. I think both of these movies also, I mean, when you're talking about that desire to escape, you're also just talking about that desire to connect. Like both of these movies are very much about loneliness. And in being John Malkovich, everybody kind of tries to escape loneliness through sex, through connecting to each other physically, even if they always have to be in John Malkovich's body to do it. They're all looking for a sense of connection. I think the most interesting expression of that, though, comes down to Lester eventually deciding to spend the rest of his existence in Malkovich's head with like a dozen other people. He talks about how lonely he is because of his imaginary speech impediment, uh, which his executive <laughs> assistant has uh, foisted upon him. But mm. he seems so happy in the end to be in John Malkovich with all these other people. Like for most of us, hell is other people. You know, the idea of eternally living in a tiny space with a dozen other people sounds like uh, so well, and like no exit, but also just like hell, as far as I'm concerned, sounds like the ultimate in claustrophobia. But for the the person in this movie, for all of those people together, it's togetherness, it's connection, it's an end to the loneliness they can't escape. And then in I'm thinking of ending things. I mean, this movie just drips with loneliness. You you get the impression that everything that's happening in it is happening because this this central character, this janitor character, is so alone and can't connect to anyone. No one will listen to him. No one cares about him. So he's developed this elaborate interiority to him. And it expresses itself through these elaborate fantasies that are, again, about romance, about lust and, and love and longing and connection and, and violence. All of these things that are just a way of kind of expressing into himself, like all of these rich and vivid things that nobody in his life wants to hear, that nobody in his life can relate to. Yeah, and everything you're describing now connects to another sort of connection that I was really picking up on watching them this week, which is this sort of kind of fascination, but also this like terror about aging and bodies and the breakdown of bodies, you know, and I'm thinking of ending things, the characters, you know, in a blink of an eye, they go from being middle-aged to being on their literal deathbeds. And, um, you know, I guess that could be a commentary on how time seems to slip away from us so quickly. But when you look at that in conjunction with being John Malkovich, there you have, you know, these characters like physically, you know, in the case of Dr. Lester, like trying to escape from mortality by jumping from body to body when they get too old. Like it's this fantasy of not having to get older and being able to remain eternally young, or at least, you know, avoiding the the last bit of, of aging. You know, he's not necessarily young when they take over a body, they're 44 years old or whatever the, the thing is. But just this fantasy of, of not having to get super old, not having to die, being able to live forever, and not having to worry about um, whatever is, uh, is, happens when you die. 
I think that's definitely another thing that connects the two movies and is a, a perpetual uh, source of fascination of Charlie Kaufman that I'm sure we can all think of examples from his other movies as well. For sure. I think that's really well observed. And I think it also just chains nicely into kind of a further iteration of that connection. You know, as people's bodies are breaking down, as they're getting older, as their minds are breaking down, either under outside influence or because of age, everything in the movies is fracturing. And both of these films end up being about breakdowns, about disjuncts where everything falls apart in a really surreal way. Malkovich, like going into his own mind and experiencing the Malkovich reverse, like that's what people remember about the film. And it's hilarious. But it's also just this sort of this terrifying image of narcissism where nobody in the world really exists except him. And you see that exact same idea iterated out again in Anomalisa. But as far as I'm thinking of ending things, the whole movie is a breakdown. You know, the whole movie is this <laughs> dissolution of a mind. And watching it progress from a relatively stable fantasy to kind of an environment where everything is a reference, nothing entirely makes sense. It's all beautiful, but it doesn't, it doesn't all hang together in a like a linear or logical kind of way. I think both of these movies are about breakdowns. Well, the structure of I'm thinking of many things is so hinky, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's so unusual in kind of an interesting break from what he he usually does. I mean, his I, I think about like, you know, how like Ardman animation movies all kind of just ultimately have a uh, what do they call it? like a Rube Goldberg type of ending, right? You know, uh, where everything just kind of kind of syncopates and there's a kind of a chase or something, and there's a lot of action going on. I mean, that's basically how Charlie Kaufman's scripts work. Like they get to a point where things just go haywire, and it happens in being John Malkovich. With a, there's a lot of frantic action in that. There's a ton of frantic action at the end of Eternal Sunshine. At Synecdoche, New York, of course, gets completely insane in its final bit but here it's kind of like different i mean like i I guess you could say that the last fourth of the film in the high school is its own special sort of crazy but it doesn't progress in the same way as his other films it doesn't it behaves a little differently um which is again one of the things that i find intriguing about it it doesn't have any kind of predictable structure to it or escalation that you necessarily can anticipate it's 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 its own weird beast i feel like we'd be missing out if we didn't at least note that these are both movies about relationships that are falling apart and where a, a kind of like clingy desperate man hangs on to a woman who is not into the relationship in the same way that he is like even leaving aside Craig's instantaneous lust for Maxine and his utter willingness to betray Lottie for her, the connection between Craig and Lottie from the beginning seems they seem like roommates. It always feels weird to me in that movie when we get to the point of them being married because there's no chemistry, there's no sense of connection, and they don't quite seem old enough to be having that that movie thing. I mean, to some degree, that real life thing, but, you know, the symbolic movie thing of, uh, like, we've been together too long and the spark is dead. There's just no sense that there was ever a spark there. And in the same sort of way, you kind of find yourself asking what Lucia and Jake ever had in common, but that becomes part of the text as you keep getting different views on how they got together in the first place, as the story keeps breaking down. And maybe it's about her inability to express herself and stand up for herself. Or maybe it's about her actual contempt for him. 
or maybe it's about something else entirely. The narrative keeps shifting and it's hard to tell. But either way, like that like male-female relationship in both of these movies is just so fraught and so full of like all of that loneliness and longing and breakdown we've been talking about. And pretty much every other Charlie Kaufman movie that I can think <laughs> of at the moment as well. Yeah, he really hasn't done... I mean, his one really romantic movie is about how it's a good thing to live through a breakup. <laughs> <laughs> and to hold on to memories of relationships that don't work. That's the most romantic film that he's made, which is kind of amazing. Because uh, this this would not rank very high <laughs> as far as romantic films go. This, yeah, this this would go. This would rank on the list of like all time worst date movies. No matter what you yeah. think about it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I could I could see to some degree. I feel like any uh, movie that gives you something to talk about after the movie is potentially a good date movie. But yeah, yeah, it's sure not a an upper it's, it's sure not a movie that you go home and make out after unless you're just trying to avoid talking about the movie anymore well being john malkovich is streaming on netflix and can be rented or purchased via the usual digital outlets it is also available on criterion dvd and blu-ray i'm thinking of ending things is currently a netflix exclusive we'll be right back with your next picture show It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. In keeping with the Charlie Kaufman kind of like meta theme of the night, I'm going to ask me, hey me, what in the film world has been good for you lately? (laughs) Usually we don't make the host go first on these, but I want to talk about a different Charlie Kaufman film, and it just seemed like the best transition point. It is entirely possible that anybody listening to this does not need to be told to see Schenectady, New York. It is possible that you either have and you hate it, and right now you're laughing at me, or that you have and you love it, and you don't need my recommendation. But it just it's such an underseen film compared to Eternal Sunshine, compared to being John Malkovich. It's always felt like an underappreciated film to me. And to me, it's the film that kind of most clearly and thoroughly expresses the Charlie Kaufman mentality. The first time I saw this movie, un- unlike uh, our absent co-host Genevieve, like I'm not a movie crier, but this movie made me cry. And it wasn't because of any of the emotional aspects of the film. It was, <laughs> if you can believe it, because of the structure. There are very few films that make me cry because the structure is so like clever that in some way I consider it just kind of like fundamentally insightful about the human condition. Um, Schenectady in New York stars Philip Seymour Hoffman as a playwright who embarks on this like ridiculous outsized quest uh, to create this art installation that kind of becomes, in a way, his whole world, maybe the whole world. And the movie is just kind of a process of him falling down the rabbit hole of his own ambition, of his own creativity, of his own desire to express art. And to me, there was just the way that it unfolds captures so much about both how easy it is for artists to fall into their own navel, how easy it is for artists to get lost in the art, and how there is a degree to which no art is ever really going to accurately express real life. Uh, Everything that's said in, uh, I'm thinking of ending things regarding the difficulty of appreciating art that doesn't have somebody standing in it telling you how to feel. I feel that all of that is expressed in Schenectady in New York in a much subtler way through just the attempts to create this outsized ambitious art piece 
and never really be able to to get it under control, to, to grasp what it's for or who it's for or what it's going to involve. Because the attempt to create real life within an artwork is just in fundamentally impossible. You know, life is big and art is small and like the connections that it makes can feel big, but it only ever really captures like fragments or, or parts or aspects of life. I loved this movie. It's got Catherine Keener in it again. It's always mm-hmm. good to see her. It's got so many of Kaufman's kind of obsessions and, and functions again, including the sad man who wants the entire world to kind of bend over backwards and, and do what his ambitions say that it should. And I've kind of imagined that revisiting it now would be pretty bittersweet because we miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I just, I never think that there's a bad time to revisit Schenectady, New York. And of course, it's uh, on all of the usual streaming services. It's pretty accessible these days. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, it's one of those that definitely grows on repeat viewings. And you're just kind of grateful that Charlie Kaufman and Philip Seymour Hoffman got to work together because, of course, <laughs> those two have so much in common. I mean, I, I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman has played that type of character, the Charlie Kaufman type, so often to sort of actually do it is great. And I think there's kind of a thing with synecdoche and, and adaptation in particular that, that is revealing of process, some of the artistic process and the difficulty, you know, you can think of ending things, but it's hard to actually put an end to what you're what you're doing to put a conclusion to the artwork that you're working on. Um, and so it just keeps building and growing and becoming becoming this this unwieldy thing that you can't tame. I th- think it's fantastic. Matt, have you seen it or do you have any thoughts on it? It's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. I will say, uh, don't, I guess jumping back a little, because I did promise people would get into the title of uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things and then we didn't. Uh, you're right. The Schenectady is about someone who doesn't know how to end things. Mm-hmm. Um Arguably, I'm thinking of ending things is some about somebody who doesn't know how to end her relationship, um, but at the same time is representative of somebody who is ending his life and doesn't exactly know how to go about doing that. You know, again, everything in the worlds of Charlie Kaufman's people is falling apart. And I think if you look kind of at the range of them, you'll find a lot of people who have troubles with closure. You know, Joel in Eternal Sunshine is where he is because he was thinking of ending things by cutting someone out of his life and then he couldn't seal the deal. Basically, even if you don't think I'm thinking of ending things is the best Charlie Kaufman movie, it's the best Charlie Kaufman title because it could be the title of all of his movies. You could literally call any of his movies I'm thinking of ending things and it would be appropriate. I think you're exactly right on that. Uh, Scott, I think you're thinking of beginning things by telling us about a different movie. <laughs> uh, sure. This is all fa- fairly random, but I, I had a chance to revisit the 1963 Paul Newman movie HUD recently and uh, very strongly recommended because, again, it's a like every other movie I've seen in the last six months, it is a pandemic movie. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's about sick cows, diseased cows on a ranch. But what was really interesting to me about it, and I think it's very interesting about Paul Newman as an actor, is like, here is a person, and this is 1963, this is one of the most beautiful, charismatic stars to ever grace the silver screen. And he was determined to push back against that as much as possible. And he spent a career playing 
rascals sometimes um you know in, in films like butch cassidy i guess or, or the sting but here he's just he's an anti-hero he plays a guy who is uh you know is a womanizer sleeps with other men's wives uh who betrays his father who's very salt of the earth who was a terrible influence on his nephew who's who, who uh has a very tortured relationship with their housekeeper and just behaves dishonorably from the beginning and yet there's complexity to the character and there's vividness to the look of the film this is a film that was it's based on a larry mcmurtry novel i can't remember the name of the novel but in any case it's beautiful to look at james wong how uh shot it in black and white widescreen he, he won an oscar for it i think it's worth revisiting just uh, you know i mean i think it's a really interesting movie and just a good example of a star you know pushing it back against their image and trying to bring layers of sort of darkness and complexity to a face that everybody uh, is inclined to love hud 1963 <laughs> why why does 1963 loom so large in our uh the next picture show imagination right now Oh, that's right, because The Lord of the Flies was another black and white film from 1963, wasn't it? Well, it's funny that you would uh, bring another movie about somebody uh, pushing back against their image to uh, being John Malkovich Knight. I do my best. See, see, now suddenly HUD doesn't seem completely out of nowhere, (laughs) so I feel good about it. It's all thematic. And I I would watch it with The Hustler, too. Hustler's 1961, also black and white, also him playing a character who is deeply, deeply flawed. So I'm watching both. It's all connected. All art is one art. Uh, all ambition yeah. is one ambition. And it's all about the pandemic. Every single damn film is about the pandemic. Uh, what about you, Matt? Any is you, you have any pandemic related entertainment for us? Uh, yeah, mine mine works as a good pandemic uh, movie too. It doesn't have any sick cows, but I think um, the Dang message. It. I don't. Yeah, sorry, but it, I think the message is certainly timely and. Um, it's welcome. And uh, my movie is... <laughs> Given that I know what this film is, I'm finding this description hilarious. This this movie is most welcome right now. It is <laughs> Phil and Ted face, face the music. The third film in the trilogy, I'm sure it was always planned uh, to happen just this way. I guess the um, the writers, the original writers who it wrote, was planned. They, I mean, they've like wanted they... to make a third one for a very yes, long time, and yes. it's, it's taken it's taken them a while. And I guess the, the the benefit of that is I think that they've stumbled into a really nice spot for Bill and Ted, which is you know in the in the first movies they have. They're so young and innocent, and they have been told by prophets from the future, by uh, George Carlin, that their music is going to change the world. And of course, we now find them 30 years later, and it hasn't, because how could it, really? And so we get to see Bill and Ted as kind of middle-aged guys. They're still the same guys, but... You know, things just haven't quite worked out how how they wanted. They haven't changed the world and brought about utopia. And um, it's just um, not to be too personal, but it's a relatable it's a relatable position to be in, I guess, to uh, to feel like you're getting older and maybe you haven't achieved all the things you wanted to achieve when you were younger. And um, it's also a very funny and sweet movie. They kind of do this lovely thing where they. They're able to bring back all the things you enjoyed in the first two movies without really rehashing them. You know, you 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 travel through time, you see famous people of history, uh, the Grim Reaper is involved, but it's not a simple rehash of what they did before. And um, in terms of the, uh, it as uh, quarant- quarantainment or as a pandemic viewing, 
you know, I think where the movie arrives at in a lot of ways is not surprising. The solution to the problem that Bill and Ted have in this movie, which is that basically there's a some sort of, uh, you know, uh, cataclysm that's going to occur in the length of the movie. It's like almost a real time movie. If they don't finally write the song that's going to fix the world that they've been prophesized for all these years to write. And what it comes down to is this uh, kind of suggestion uh, on the movie's part that regardless of whether one song could magically fix the world, if, if um, people tried to help one another, that maybe that is the kind of thing that could start to fix the world. And right now, that's, uh, I feel like, uh, uh, is beneficial to my own uh, psyche. And it's, I watched all three movies this week. I had never <laughs> seen Bogus Journey before. Um, it's a good one. It's really good. It's just as good as mm-hmm. the first movie, and I felt like yeah. this one is just as good as the other ones. It's a very welcome entry in the series, and um, I, 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 I'm sure it's playing in movie theaters. I saw it on a screener. <laughs> I, 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 it's going to be available for rental or maybe in drive-ins. I think it would be a really fun drive-in movie if you have a drive-in by you, or I would definitely recommend renting it um, and seeing it at home. Maybe enjoy it with a beverage or, or two would probably be a very uh, bodacious way to enjoy it. Um, and yes, it delivers more than I expected it would. And, and you know, and, and connecting it to I'm thinking of ending things. There is a fair amount of talk in that movie about time and time moving through you as opposed to you moving through time. And I do, think do, that do, dialogue do, might be repeated verbatim in Bill and Ted face the music in a slightly it, more profound way, dude. But it's also kind of a meta movie. I mean, on some level, the idea of Bill and Ted traveling through time, meeting different versions of themselves, literally trying to steal the idea for this song from their own future, like trying to create something and not being able to get a handle on what they want to create, knowing that they have the capacity to create something important, but not being able to get there. These all feel like really strong Charlie Kaufman themes. And a lot of the movie's action comes down to how much they love their wives uh, and the fact that their wives are kind of feeling disaffected and disconnected from them. And there's a lot of kind of uh, body horror about getting older, too, in, the, in this movie as well. Like, there's some, yeah, I think Charlie Kaufman would really relate to seeing all the old man makeup that they wear over the course of the movie as well. Oh, my God, Pollock, we've cracked it wide open. <laughs> Bill and Ted 3 is secretly yet another Charlie Kaufman film. Do you feel like uh, Jimmy Stewart might enjoy Bill and Ted? Yeah, the uh, they're most excellent dudes when you, uh, you break it down to its core. <laughs> Oh my God! You know what? You know what they are, Scott. They're wild stallions. <laughs> wow! I have a lot of thoughts on Bill and Ted, and I don't want to follow up on that any slight bit at all. Maybe we'll talk about Bill and Ted uh, later when more people have seen it. Maybe people will have some feedback about that film. In the meantime, I'm just going to cede the stage to Jimmy Stewart, as one should. Oh, is there is there more I should say? Is there an outro I can read? You tell me. It's your no, show. No. I'm just a guest. You're you're fine, Jimmy. Uh, go to Washington. They need you there. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out September 22nd and 29th. Uh, Scott, you want to tell me what's coming up next? 
As parents, one of the effects of quarantine is that your children have very little access to people other than you, so you have a lot of control over the inputs they get in their day-to-day life. Now, as a responsible father, I would never use the opportunity to fuck with their heads, but not so the parents in our next pairing. In the new Miranda July movie Kajillionaire, Evan Rachel Wood stars as the only child of a pair of small-time grifters, played by Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger. All she's known her entire life are the schemes they pull to stay afloat, but her worldview changes when a fourth and more normal person, played by Gina Rodriguez, enters into the picture. The idea of parents who cruelly limit their children's point of view calls to mind Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos' 2009 breakthrough, Dogtooth. The three young adult children in Dogtooth are kept penned into a country estate and terrorized by parents who monitor them so closely that they've invented their own vocabulary words. In both films, once a window to the outside cracks open just a little, chaos ensues. If you want to play along at home, Kajillionaire is coming to theaters in a limited way on September 25th, but will be on VOD a week after that. Dogtooth, which we'll discuss first, is up on Criterion Channel, among other options. In the meantime, would love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of being John Malkovich, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Charlie Kaufman in general, Bill and Ted 3, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net and we may read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, Matt Singer, where can people find you and your work? Uh, I'm the uh, the editor and uh, critic at ScreenCrush.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt Singer. I think that's about it. Do I? <laughs> is there anywhere else to find me? Uh, lying in it. a lying in a heap of rubbish by do- the side wait, of the we, Jersey Turnpike. Should we dox you on this? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a I wrote a Spider-Man book. You can find that uh, yes. a, a book about the history yeah. of Spider-Man. You can find that on uh, various book selling platforms what is the title of this book that they can find it's uh spider-man from amazing to spectacular the definitive comic art collection fantastic really rolls off the tongue (laughs) (laughs) uh scott tobias where can people find you these days Uh, you can find me on twitter scott underscore tobias where i mostly grouse about how horrible thing is that things are in the world and then um and then you can find my work at the new york times uh the ringer vulture guardian and other fine outlets what about you tasha I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where you can occasionally find me writing about film. You can find our co-host Keith Phipps writing about film at Vulture, Mel Magazine, The Ringer, and many other fine outlets. You can find him on Twitter at kphipps3000. Our producer Genevieve is the deputy culture editor at Vulture, and she's on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. We're so lonely. We're striving every day for connection. Our minds are disintegrating. It's making us go to very meta places. So we want more listeners. We want more prominence. And Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting there. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep our sad man lives going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. I'm gonna dream of a rose no more.